Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KAOA. Our guest for the 383rd show is Dr. Christy Wilson-Bowers assistant professor of history at the University of Missouri, who will be talking to us about the long history of social distancing. Our history buffs for today are a show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toplin. Terry, you get to start us off this time. Uh, yes, Christy, could you talk about, in the early 20th century, about how people viewed tuberculosis? You know, I'm in my own family, I remember my grandmother talking about her young sister who had TB, and that uh, she was out in a sanitarium, I believe, in Colorado. They were from Nebraska, and that the family had actually rented a private rail carriage to bring her home, along with a private nurse, for Christmas. And so how did folks view TB at that time? Yeah, that's a a great question. And, of course, TB is one of the big uh, epidemics, if you will, uh, for several centuries and really does take a, an enormous toll in lives. Um, so we have this process that uh, TB undergoes or uh, consumption uh, undergoes uh, sort of different, um, being viewed in different ways. Uh, and, yeah, we have this uh, 20th century idea of uh, fresh air, uh, mountain air in particular, but other kinds of, of uh, fresh air, I think, um, uh, I'm kind of pulling this out of the back of my mind, and I think maybe one of the first sanitariums was in the Adirondacks, uh, the the idea that you needed to um, be in that healthier environment and that that is what would actually cure this. So it was not seen um, as a microbial disease um, for a, a long time, and it's uh, something that certainly spread in families and was kind of recognized for that spread, uh, but there was no effort to, um, for, for a very long time, there was no effort to, say, uh, shun or quarantine people who were sick with it, and instead families were generally caregivers, and so then you do have this uh, familial uh, spread. Okay, Rick. Uh, Christy, uh, we uh, were talking uh, during the broadcast version about uh, various techniques to to uh, social distance, and I, I'm uh, curious: is what what uh, uh, what processes did people go through to uh, determine uh, some of these simple practices, like? like social distancing, using masks, washing hands, you know, just general sanitation. Uh, how long did that process take before it became uh, noted as effective? Well, uh, you know, again, because historians like to complicate things, I could, <laughs> I could see a uh, no really? answer. Really? Um, wow, talk about defense. We can... We can uh, you know, I would say you could trace kind of mask wearing, again, back to the kind of medieval practices and, and concern about the air. Not that people were necessarily 
tying things around their nose and mask, but they were covering their nose and mouth. I'm sorry, nose and mouth. Um, you know, very often uh, holding a posy or holding a handkerchief uh, soaked in something that, that smelled different. So it's not entirely the same thing, and it's not for the same reasons, but I think there's a link there, that idea of um, breathing in and out uh, through something differently will help change the uh, overall uh, environment or will help um, protect you in that way. Uh, uh, hand washing is very recent. Um, that's that's much more, uh, yeah, post-germ theory, uh, 20th century um, idea that you really need to keep your own hands clean and that that will help keep you healthy. Uh, let's make this more modern. Um, my grandmother was born in 1907, and uh-huh. she was a child when uh, the Spanish influenza went down. And she was alive when I had come across that nobody in Evanston died from the Spanish influence outbreak. And I asked her, I said, how did this happen? And she looked at me and said, complete, total, totally militant lockdown. Nobody came in. Nobody came out for the duration. And I'm like, really? And she goes, yes. She goes, it was it was about as martial law as you could get. Uh, and nobody died. Are there ever, any other instances that you would be know of or come across where you had a pandemic where the forces from the outside, the, the government, whoever it was, said, this is it, it's over? And just locked things down, you mean? Didn't yeah, I mean, didn't yeah just, people... and something to that extreme, I guess I'm asking. Yeah, um, well, the, the famous case that comes to mind is the uh, English village of Eme, in the 17th century, which did the same thing and is known for uh, having locked themselves down. Now, to different purpose, uh, because they actually had an outbreak of plague and they locked down in order to prevent it from spreading elsewhere. Um, so okay. outside forces uh, wanted to lock them down, but people also in the in the town, and there's you know, there's the heroic story of self-sacrifice that has been somewhat debunked by historians. But in fact, uh, the the village was contained and there were a large number of deaths, though not everybody died. Um, but that is, a you know, another another angle on this kind of uh, extreme lockdown. Um, okay. I don't know of any other specific cases, but I, I'm sure there are in the U.S. with the, the influenza outbreak um, and in smaller communities. What gets the attention, of course, is where we can find records and where we find records are larger cities and often where you have momentous, you know, uh, events of either large scale deaths or uh, protests or, you know, things happening that are going to generate more of those right. records and, and bring them to people's attention um, more so than than small places successfully avoiding it. To end this note before Jay. She said the mail didn't even come to Evanston, which I had read that the mailmen were often carriers to places because they were doing their job. She said we didn't even get mail, which that one kind of really baffled me. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I have seen lots of yeah, there's lots of ways that they treated mail to try and make it to try and uh, make it uncontagious or to uh, to try and prevent it from spreading disease. But, yeah, you'd have to worry about the mailman, too, who was bringing it. Christy, I'm interested, because we have had 
recurrences of epidemics and pandemics down through history. And we've talked a little bit in, in the radio segment about uh, public health measures being developed. Um, I'm wondering how, how do pandemics or, or epidemics drive public policy um, how much lasting influence does having, and, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head of, of the, the Spanish flu epidemic, you know, how much does, mm-hmm. does that change the, the way that public health is, is administered or dealt with um, as a result of something that calamitous happening? Well, I, you can certainly the the creation of public health. I mean, there's a long history of public health um, that doesn't have to do with regulating um, for disease. So we can, you know, ancient world. Uh, there's there's ideas of uh, making sure there's clean water supplies and that there's you know that the the food in the markets is healthy or or untainted or whatever. Um, and it, you know, plague is what is usually credited with uh, helping push for the development of uh, boards of public health, sort of standing um, committees or groups who, who monitor the health uh, and monitor for disease outbreaks and the creation of these routines, um, monitoring uh, travelers who are trying to come in and, and things like that. Uh, and, and other outbreaks, certainly, um, cholera, again, um, you know, the the story of Jon Snow figuring out that it's the water uh, water pump that is um, contaminated, the water there, and, and convincing the authorities to remove the handle from the water pump. And again, that's an oversimplified story, uh, but uh, that idea of the state intervening, right, of authorities of secular authorities of some sort, local authorities intervening in the name of public health to regulate what is going on uh, around people in order to try and prevent disease. So I think uh, really all of the, in a lot of ways, we can trace all of the public health concepts that we have, the idea that that the health of the public needs to be protected is absolutely a result of various epidemics uh, of the threats to the population. And um, and that's also, again, where we are with things being so politicized. Is it the government's job to protect people's health? And there are those who will say, no, it's not the government's job or it's not the national government's job. It's only the local government's job or, you know, whatever. So um, it's times of crisis, uh, health crisis, epidemic crisis that are producing the push for new practices, no, new procedures, new policies. You know, we need to have some sort of intervention to uh, keep people safe. And the biggest conflict that has come out, you know, over all of these centuries is that conflict between the individual and the community and whose rights are more important. Because very often to protect the community, we have to impose on individual rights as we understand them, rights and freedoms. And to say, well, if you have, uh, you know, drug-resistant tuberculosis, you can't get on a plane and go somewhere is in the best interest of everybody else on that plane and everybody else in the community, but it may not be in the best interest of that individual. And so uh, those questions about how much policies can restrict uh, individual movement and the rights of individuals runs right up against 
uh, how much we expect authorities or government to do to help ensure the health of the community overall. Okay, Terry, you get the honor of the last question. All right, thank you. Um, yes, I remember in the 50s, uh, growing up in little Coralville, Iowa, at the time when it only had 12 streets, that uh, we actually had a, um, like a, probably from the public health official, uh, a paper tacked to the front door of our house uh, for quarantine notice. And I believe one of my sisters either had, and I don't remember now exactly, but it was either the measles, mumps, or chicken pox. And I found that interesting okay. that they actually packed a, a paper of quarantine on the front door of our house. Yeah. I, that's not used today, I guess, but I find that fascinating. Was that common practice back then? Um, that's a very good question, and I'm, uh, you're, you're going to hit a gap in my – I mean, again, I can go back to uh, certainly houses were marked – in early centuries, and I, I uh, all roads for me lead back to plague because that's kind of where I spend most of my time. So yes, absolutely, houses were marked to let people know this was a an infected place and to stay out. Um, and so I guess that is something that that uh, continues through into the 20th century. Um, that's actually very fascinating, and I I, I wonder if if you were prohibited from leaving the house or it was simply to alert people not to come into the house yes I, i'm not sure because i was the youngest and so yeah my memory i remember seeing the picture of my sister standing next to the sign <laughs> inside oh. the house <laughs> but i Come believe it forever. was yes it was a childhood illness and yet the house yeah. had a, a placed on the front door yeah Huh, interesting. Well, on, on that cheery note, we would like to thank our guest for this 383rd show, Dr. Christy Wilson-Bowers, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Missouri, who talked to us about the long history of social distancing. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.